Turn again to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Our text is uh, verses 16 through 33. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, the opening part of this passage down through verse 23. And I want us to uh, conclude the passage, uh, as Paul does, uh, laying out some of the sufferings and trials that he experienced Uh, in his life and in his ministry. But I want to read uh, the entire passage so you get the entire flow of it. 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 16 and down through verse 33. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Our text is all about boasting. And surprisingly, it is the Apostle Paul who is doing all the boasting. I'm sure that you understand people boast for all kinds of reasons. They boast because, for example, they're insecure. They want to be accepted. They boast because they want to be validated in some way. Boast because they think they're better than others boast because they want to diminish somebody else, boasting because they want to impress people and thereby maybe gain control over them to one degree or another. Boasting is a pretty empty exercise. 
I, I like something that Mark Twain said about boasting. He said, noise proves nothing. Often a hen who has merely laid an egg cackles as if she had laid an asteroid. Boasting, pretty empty. Pretty loud, but pretty meaningless. I, I think about social media. People constantly posting as though everybody breathlessly wants their latest opinion on everything. Um, or the latest information about their daily schedule or their daily life. I like what someone said about social media posts. A person said this, unless you fall off the treadmill and smack your face, no one, no one wants to hear about your workout. Oh, we are so self-centered, aren't we? Uh, one of the amazing characters in Major League Baseball from many, many years ago, Dizzy Dean, he had a pitcher brother, Daffy Dean, uh, pitched for the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, in the 1930s, he was uh, quite a sensation pitching for the Cardinals. Uh, in one season, uh, in one game against the Chicago Cubs, he struck out 17 Cubs batters. Uh, and in that same year, he won uh, 30 games. And uh, he talked about it a lot, but here's what he said. It ain't bragging if you can do it, he said. Well, the, with regard to this text that we have in front of us the, this morning, uh, this whole matter of boasting, it all got going because a group of false teachers came to Corinth, and they came saying, we're servants of Christ. Why, we are true apostles who have come to you and bringing you the truth that comes from Jesus. But as Paul says earlier, they were preaching another Jesus, another Holy Spirit, another gospel. And so they boasted of being apostles, they boasted of being servants of Christ. They weren't any of that, but boy could they brag. Boy could they boast to make it appear that they were men of tremendous significance. And sadly, some of the Corinthians were impressed by all their boastful claims. Boasting about their supposed accomplishments here, there, and everywhere. Boasting about their spiritual gifts. Boasting about their Jewish heritage. Boasting about uh, visions and revelations that they had received. Boasting about how many miles they had traveled. Hey, and here are our letters of recommendations from really important people. I mean, so you better listen to what we have to say. They boasted about all kinds of things. And because the Corinthians were impressed by all of that, uh, they were turning away, some of them, from the Apostle Paul. And that wasn't Paul's main concern, but in turning from Paul, they were turning from the gospel, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so to counteract these false teachers and all their boastful claims, the only strategy Paul can come up with is to start boasting himself. And so he engages in what scholars have called his fool's speech. Now, the whole thing, as the entire context makes clear, is very distasteful to him. He has no heart for it. In fact, Paul says, you notice in verse 17, now, I'm not speaking as Jesus would. Jesus would never do this. But I'm boasting to make a point. I'm playing a part. That's why he says so many times, I'm speaking as a fool now. I'm playing a part. I'm play acting in all of this. I'm not really boastful like the false teachers are. I'm playing a part to make a point to all of you. I want to shake you back to reality, bring you back to the truth. And so as we noticed last week where Paul begins his boasting, he starts with the same things that 
the intruders in Corinth had started with, namely their Jewish nationality and heritage. We're Israelites. We're Hebrews. We speak the Hebrew language. We're of the seed of Abraham. All these things. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, God doesn't care about any of that, but you seem to care about it. So since you do, I want you to know I'm just as Jewish as they are. I'm just as much of a Hebrew as they are. If that's important to you, all right, I'm, I'm as Jewish or as much a descendant of Abraham as they are. Now, they're servants of Christ, so they say. Paul says, all right, if they are servants of Christ, I am far more a servant of Christ and then he says, no, I'm really talking like an insane person. And after he finishes saying, I'm a greater servant of Christ, we expect Paul to launch into a list of all his accomplishments like the false teachers did. We would expect Paul in the next verses to talk about all the things that he had achieved in ministry. All the letters that he had written. How many do we have in our New Testament? All the places he had traveled to, the converts he had won, how many people he had baptized, how many miracles he had performed, all the church councils that he had been a prominent member of, the congregations he had established, all the money he had raised for the poor in Judea and Jerusalem. You would have expected him to boast about all of these things, but instead, what does he do? He boasts about hardship, persecution, weakness, and loss. You notice that in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Now I'm really talking like an insane person. But then he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. That's the heading for the rest of the text that follows. And Paul, in the verses that follow, is going to give us the specifics of what he touches on in summary in verse 23. And so as we look at what Paul writes in the remainder of this text, let's remember that his list is not exhaustive. It's illustrative. And let's also remember that as Paul writes this amazing list in 2 Corinthians, he lived for another 11 years. Beyond the writing of 2 Corinthians, how much did he suffer in the next 11 years? To add to this list, which isn't even a complete list to start with. So this is just a sample of what Paul endured. Let's work our way through what he writes here. Here's his list. Starts out in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, the law of Moses prescribed that if one broke the law, one of the punishments that could be meted out was beatings. And the number of lashes was to correspond to the seriousness of the offense. So if it were a minor offense, just a handful of lashes, the more serious it was, the more lashes were administered. And the law of Moses said the absolute max you can ever give is 40 lashes. The penalty beyond that, by the way, was the death penalty. So this is the next thing to the death penalty. Paul here says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. The practice had been put in place by Paul's day that you didn't want to miscount. As you're beating somebody with the maximum number of lashes, you don't want to miscount and give them 41, let's say. That would be breaking God's law. So you'd only give 39, so if you inadvertently miscounted, you wouldn't go over the 40 limit. 
Something else about these kinds of beatings. Jewish custom said if a person died while undergoing a severe beating, which happened, the person doing the beating was not guilty of manslaughter, murder, anything like that. That was just part and parcel of the way it goes. And so what I want you to realize is the potential, when you got the 39 lashes, the potential was you wouldn't survive it. Five times Paul received the maximum penalty. It could have taken his life any one of those five times. And why did he receive that maximum penalty? As I say, the next one up was the death penalty. It's undoubtedly because he went into the synagogues, preached Christ, Christ as the, Jesus as the true Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. For the Jews, that was false teaching. That was blasphemy of the worst sort. There is no crime worse than that. And so he was given the ultimate penalty. The Jews had no authority over the death penalty. The Romans had to do that. Otherwise, they would have executed him if they could have. But they gave him the maximum penalty allowed under Roman law. None of these five beatings is recorded in the book of Acts. We do not know when they took place. Five times the maximum severe penalty. Notice verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's what the Romans did. And, of course, we have one of those three times in the book of Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas were in Philippi. Remember, they were arrested. They were thrown into prison. You know the story about them singing at night, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, all of those things. But one of those times beaten with rods is that famous story out of Acts 16. There's another two that aren't recorded in the book of Acts. Notice again verse 25, once I was stoned. We have that story in Acts. That's in Acts chapter 14 where there was mob violence in the city of Lystra and people began hurling stones at Paul and he was knocked to the ground. Everybody thought they they had killed him and so they dragged what they thought was his carcass, just dragged him out of the city and thankfully Paul wasn't killed. He was severely injured, but he recovered his health. He was able to continue on with his ministry. That's Acts 14, once I was stoned. Verse 25, three times I was shipwrecked. We have no account of any of these shipwrecks in the book of Acts. None of them are recorded. There's a shipwreck in Acts 27 where he shipwrecked on the island of Malta, but that's three years after 2 Corinthians. And so we have no account of when these shipwrecks occurred, but you notice at least in one of them, what does Paul say? A day and a night I was adrift at sea. So there he is in the Aegean Sea or the Mediterranean Sea, clinging to some piece of wreckage, going through a whole day, going into the night, wondering if he's going to make it, wondering if he's going to be rescued. Is he going to survive? Is he going to drown? Hoping and praying out there, clinging to wreckage in the ocean. Three times shipwrecked. And then verse 26, Paul just touches on all his dangers in the travels that he undertook. Verse 26, the New English Version translates it this way. It says, I have continually been on the road. And as Paul talks about traveling everywhere, you notice it wasn't safe for him anywhere, was it? Notice that word danger over and over again. He mentions robbers as an example. Out in a rural area, out in a remote area. Danger from robbers. 
crossing dangerous rivers. It was dangerous at sea. It wasn't safe in rural areas. It wasn't safe, he says, in urban areas. I'm in danger from my own people, mob violence or whatever it is. I'm in danger from Gentiles, legal action taken against me. And so everywhere I go, on land and sea, in the cities, in the country, there are a whole host of dangers, more than I can enumerate in this passage, Paul says, that I've experienced. And all of those dangers are one thing, but notice the worst is at the end of the list in verse 26. Danger from false brothers. Those who claim to be Christian, but from one motive or another wanted to destroy the Apostle Paul and his ministry, using treacherous ways to undermine and to oppose him, perhaps as Paul came to an area, denouncing him to the religious and political authorities. Guess who just showed up in our county? Guess who just showed up in town? This is a troublemaker of the worst sort. Just want to make sure you as a sheriff's department know about it. Those kinds of things. Maybe even those false brothers revealing the names of elders or other Christians in congregations who supported Paul, getting them in trouble also with the authorities. Paul says, danger from false brothers. That's a sad sentence to read. And then you notice verse 27. Paul says, in carrying out my calling, I've battled weariness and exhaustion. I have lacked sleep at various times. I've lacked food. I've lacked water, may have been during his travels in remote areas where there weren't supplies, uh, maybe when it comes to not having something to eat, not having enough money to purchase something, that might have been part of it. You think about lack of sleep, okay, Paul had to support himself many places. He worked as a tent maker. Well, when can he minister to people? It's during the day, when everybody's up and around. So he'd minister, he'd preach, he'd teach, he'd be in the synagogues, he'd be in homes, all these kinds of things. Then when night fell and everybody went to bed, he had to make a living. And so he'd stay up into the wee hours of the morning working at his craft so that he could provide for himself for the next days to come. Not enough food, not enough water, lacking sleep many, many times. Then you notice he mentions in verse 27, cold and exposure. Okay, you're out there floating in the Aegean Sea or in the Mediterranean for a day or so. Talk about cold and exposure. Or in, in cold weather, crossing freezing cold rivers, those kinds of things. Being exposed to storms when he's traveling. Um, being confined to uh, damp prison cells of one sort or another. In carrying out my calling, I've battled weariness, exhaustion, lack of sleep, lack of food, all those kinds of things. And then we discover in verse 28, what I mentioned earlier, we discover this list of hardships is not meant to be a complete listing. Because Paul says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, about my anxiety for the churches. Paul says, I could have given you a whole lot more. I could have given you a whole lot of detail in all these things, but I choose not to do so. But he says, there's one more thing I want to mention here, is that there is... The daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I'm not always in jail. I'm not always lacking in food or sleep. But every day, without exception, there's the pressure of the churches. I am worried about them, Paul says. And undoubtedly, it refers to all the congregations, I'm pretty sure, but particularly the ones that he established. 
He was responsible under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He had evangelized. He had been a church planter. He had been a missionary. People had been converted. Churches were organized. Elders were appointed. All of those things. And so as Paul left to go on to the next place, I hope they're doing well. I'm praying for him. And then sometimes he'd get word of maybe what was happening in a particular city, particular trials the congregation was undergoing, and he was anxious about that. Lord, sustain them, help them through it. That weighed on him. Or sometimes he'd get a report about what was happening in the life of an individual believer. Maybe somebody he led to the Lord. Uh, He had had dinner in their house, whatever it was. And then he gets a report of what's happening in their lives. And Paul is burdened by all of that. You notice his heart really is laid bare in verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak. Their weakness is my weakness because they're on my heart, he says. Their frailty is my frailty because they're on my heart. And then he says, who is made to fall and I am not angry. When I hear that somebody I've led to the Lord or somebody I've discipled and I hear that they've been led astray, When I hear how somebody who is weak has been hurt by others, we heard that in the gospel reading, didn't we, about the seriousness of one of these little ones, you create harm, you bring harm. Paul says, when I hear that, I'm filled with anger at what has happened to that person. Paul identifies that burdens him every day as well. And so we come to the end of the passage, and Paul says in verse 30, so if I must boast... And chapter 12, he says, by the way, you Corinthians pushed me into doing this little exercise. Paul says, I will boast in the things that show just how weak I really am. In fact, Paul says, I want to cap off this whole list by just briefly reminding you of a story. One more example of my weakness One more example of my humiliation. And he says in verse 31, as God is my witness about this event, and in fact, the whole list, I'm telling you the truth in all of this. And it's an incident, you notice here in uh, verse 32 and verse 33. It's an incident that took place in Damascus at the very beginning of Paul's apostolic ministry. You remember Paul went to Damascus as a persecutor. He went there with uh, letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest believers, to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and for punishment. And so as he came to the city, you know the story, Acts 9, it's told for the first time in the book of Acts, several other times. But Paul comes to the city, and about noonday, you remember the account, a brilliant light shines, he falls to the ground. Who are you, Lord, he says, as he hears the voice speaking to him. And Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, is converted on the road outside the city that day. Well, he goes into Damascus, and Luke tells us in Acts 9, he stayed there for some days, is the way Luke puts it. But as he had been newly converted to Christ, Acts 9 and verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And Luke says people were amazed. Here's a persecutor. I mean, he came to town like two weeks ago wanting to get rid of every Christian he could. And now he's proclaiming Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. People were amazed, Luke said. And at every turn, as people would argue with him, Luke says, he confounded all of his opponents. Well, that went on for a short time. 
But then Paul left the city. We know from the book of Galatians that after some days in Damascus, he went into Arabia, he tells us. And Arabia isn't Saudi Arabia. We think of that on the map today. Arabia would be what is the Sinai Peninsula today. It would be uh, what is the country of Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River. That was the Arabia of Paul's day. So he went there someplace, and he was gone for three years. I wonder why three years. How long were the original 12 trained by Jesus before they went out? was three years. And so before Paul officially begins his apostolic ministry, he's there in the wilderness being prepared by God for three years, as the other 12 were. And during that time of preparation, undoubtedly he proclaimed Christ. Undoubtedly he spoke of his faith to all who would listen. I'm sure that was true. But after the three years training, he's now ready to officially begin his apostolic ministry. So he goes back to Damascus. And there, of course, the word is that this Saul of Tarsus, this Paul, is now back in Damascus. And he had pretty much over three years offended just about everybody, Jew and Arab alike, by his proclaiming of Christ. And so the Jewish authorities conspire with the Arab governor of Damascus under the authority of King Eratos, Paul says, to see that he is arrested and done away with. You can read that, the whole account in Luke, in Acts chapter 9 that Luke writes for us. And so at the beginning of his apostolic ministry, before he can ever get underway, there's an attempt to kill him. And so Paul's life from that initial point the official beginning of his apostolic ministry and onward is marked by humiliation and weakness and danger day in and day out, but God's intervention and mercies the whole way. So what is Paul going to do? He's been commissioned as an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. The police are patrolling the streets. They're looking for him. The soldiers at the gates of the city are informed to watch out for him trying to find out, get some word of where he might be in the city of Damascus. Well, thankfully, there's a safe house in the city of Damascus. There is a believer who has a house right on top of the city wall, and he's got a window looking out. And so Paul is there in that safe house, and as night falls and as the authorities perhaps are closing in, they put Paul in a wicker basket, of all things. And they've got some ropes, and they let him down through this window that's up on the wall, and the house that's on the wall. Let him down through the window in this wicker basket to the ground. Paul gets out, and he makes a run for his life. Don't miss the powerful contrast between the way Paul approached Damascus three years earlier and the way he left it. That's the point he wants to make here. When he came to the city, it was broad daylight. Sun was shining, it was noonday, the sun was at its zenith. He came as a person with great power. He came with great authority. He came as a conqueror. He was boastful, arrogant, proud, strong. He was climbing the ladder to success. That was Paul when he came to the city three years earlier. Acts 9, 
2 Corinthians 11, when he leaves the city, how radically different. He leaves in the dead of night. He leaves in weakness. He leaves as a persecuted Christian. He leaves with his life on the line, his life in danger. He leaves in a humiliating way in a wicker basket, something you'd carry fish in. He's lowered in a wicker basket over the wall into the darkness, and he escapes. But Paul concludes this list by telling this initial story. When I started my apostolic work, let me remind you of what happened. Because Paul sees this as a paradigm for his life and ministry. Is that throughout Paul's life and ministry, one trial after another, God's strength would shine forth in his weakness. That's the point Paul's making. And the, Paul, and the point that Paul makes to the Corinthians is all the things that I've delineated in my letter here have marked my life, have marked my ministry from the first day until the present. Let me close with this. In, in Roman times... One of the most coveted awards a soldier could win, it's sort of like our Medal of Honor. It was that prestigious. One of the most coveted military honors that a Roman soldier could win was in Latin called the Corona Moralis, the wall crown. It was an award that was made of gold. It was a fashion to look like the turreted wall of a fortified city. And it was given to the first soldier. So the Romans are besieging a city. And they have their scaling ladders. And they're going to be storming the walls. And so as those scaling ladders are then tipped up against the wall, the first soldier to make it to the top and to make his way victoriously to the top of the wall, leading the way for the other soldiers, leading the way to victory, won the wall crown. The corona Morales. It was a crown, an award to be worn with pride. When everybody saw it, it was like, what, what great accomplishments. It's like if you met a Medal of Honor winner. I mean, this was a tremendous honor. It was something worn with pride. Paul says, I didn't go up over the wall. I was led in a basket in weakness and shame and disgrace down the wall. And Paul says that in a nutshell. The false teachers are coming, claiming, if you will, the wall crown. Look how great we are. We're the first, we're the best, we're the greatest. Paul says, no, I wasn't storming the walls at the top of the ladder. I was let down in shame in a basket by a rope on the outside. And Paul says, so let the false teachers boast as they will. Paul's attitude was that of the songwriter. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And I want you to notice in closing, let me read several verses in closing from Romans 8. Paul writing from a lifetime of trial and experience. Here's what he writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Then he quotes from the book of Psalms. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Whatever it is that you and I go through, whether it's as a Christian, whether it's the struggles of life, whatever they may be, what can separate us from Christ's love? And the answer is nothing. Paul imagines the worst. And he says there's nothing in all the universe that can separate us from God's love for us. And in all these things, in the midst of it all, the world doesn't see it that way, but we can be more than conquerors, over-conquerors, super-conquerors, I guess you could translate it through the one who gave his life for us. Ministry isn't easy. Life isn't easy. But God's presence is sufficient. And the peace of the Holy Spirit is all that we need. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this is an amazing list. I'm sure... Everybody here would identify with me in saying, I wouldn't have survived half of it. I probably would have quit a long time ago. But Lord, uh, you called and commissioned Paul to be your servant, to carry out your work, to minister in the face of great and daunting and sometimes very terrible things that came his way. So, Lord, uh, in our lives, as we prepare to go out for the week, what is it that some of us will face? Can anything we face separate us from your love? Can anything sweep us away? And the answer is no. Lord, so often in life we want the so-called wall crown. We want to climb the ladder of success. We want to get to the top. We want to be first and best and boast about it and take great joy in it. But as Jesus reminded us in our gospel lesson this morning, the one who would be greatest, all the disciples were boasting about which one was the greatest. The one who would be greatest, let that one be like a child in humility and in lowliness. And so, Lord, that is where victory is found because then all the glory goes to you, the praise goes to you, the focus is on you. And, Lord, truly, indeed to you, be all glory and honor and praise. May it be so in our lives, in our lives in this week to come. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.